Jude. Start. I'd like to read to get their context then. Jude verse 11 through 16. Woe unto them, speaking of the false teachers, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feast of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Feet clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging ways of the sea, foaming out of their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And our text for tonight, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all their ungodly among them of their all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him." These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth uh, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. So, not very much good is said about these false teachers. And tonight, uh, Jude goes back to Enoch's life, etc. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help me this, e- this evening. Lord, it is a difficult passage uh, to convey correctly. May I do so? May I say nothing amiss? May we learn together. May we be challenged that we are to live godly, righteously in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's how we are to live. May we live that way. Bless those over next door. Sydney, as he teaches, and bless our time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So tonight, if you have your outline, make a little outline. There's nothing on the back of the bolt, and that's already taken up. So with tonight is the person, the position, the prophecy, and the people. First of all, we see the person starting in chapter 1, verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints. Now that's quite, quite a statement, considering that Enoch lived in the antediluvian world. Now we know what the antediluvian world is now, because we've gone over it. It's before the flood, before the deluge, etc. So Jude goes back to our Bibles to give an example, or talk about these false teachers he's been talking about since really about verse 8 or so, actually about verse 4 or so, four or so really. All the way to verse 4, we've given examples. Here's another example how Enoch prophesied, a revelation if you would. Now, liberals generally suppose that Jude derived this fragment of information about Enoch from the Apocrypha or the book of Enoch, etc. So that brings up an interesting point just for a few moments. What, what is the Apocrypha? And so you will find if you actually had, which I do have a, a copy of, a 1611 printed of our uh, authorized version actually had the Apocrypha in it in 1611. These are books that were written, a lot of them, between uh, the Testaments, which were called the 400 silent years. Why were they silent? Were men stopping to talk? God was stopping to talk to man. He stopped talking to man for 400 years. And so Apocrypha simply means hidden and deuterocanonical. Now that's a big word, duet to canonical of canon, so second canon. So sometimes these are referred to as the second canon of Scripture. So Apocrypha, we do not have them in our Scriptures. We do not believe they were divinely inspired by God. Books such as First and Second Esdras, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, the Baruch, the Letter of Jeremiah, the Prayer of Manasseh, First and Second Maccabees, etc., even the expansion of the books of Esther and Daniel. So that is the Apocrypha. You can go out and buy a collection. If you want to read it for historical value, 
I mean, Miss Karen and I talked about a few months ago about how about what the important we historical value as long as you know what the Bible says and don't get confused by what you're reading and know some of the things you're reading are not correct. So, but that typically no one really reads Apocrypha very much. However, for the Roman Church, it's very important because Second Maccabees has a couple of verses in it that talks about how we should uh, pray for the dead, possibly, and even the purgatory. So the doctrine of purgatory comes out, not out of Scripture, but out of the Apocrypha. C.S. Lewis even believed in purgatory, so it's been, you know, it, it's, it's where that comes from. It does not come from Scripture. Purgatory is simply a place where the idea is this, that you cannot die with all your sins forgiven, so somehow you've got to have them burnt and paid off, and so you've got to go to be punished to pay for your sin. The Bible says clearly, however, that God paid for them once and all. He paid the complete price. There's nothing you and I can do to ever be punished for to pay for your sin. It's it's, it's a done deal. They are removed, according to the psalmist we read yesterday, as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea and assigned no fishing. That's the most popular sign. Nice-looking ponds. No fishing. No fishing, no fishing. And I guess if I had a really nice pond with a lot of nice fish, I'd put no fishing on there either because I want to keep my fish in the pond so I can catch them again over and over and give them names, etc. So that's the Apocrypha. It's, again, it, it's, it has many uh, historical errors, doctrinal things or not. So you know, you know the canon of Scripture simply means that which has been a, 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 a The word means rule of law that was used to determine if a book measured up to a standard. The church really recognized by about 325 A.D., the Council of Nicaea, what God had set forth to be the Bible. The church is recognizing what God's already chosen to be the Bible. And so these apocryphal books, for various reasons, the biggest reason they're not inspired by God, came on the scene. So why did they come on the scene? Well, if there have been 400 silent years, the Jewish people wanted to start writing about something. We want to hear from God. We want to write about something theological or religious, etc. So they started writing books. The book of Enoch seems to be then a composite book written at different times. Now, I'll have to tell you, I think personally that God intervened and divinely inspired Jude when he wrote this. He didn't have to go back to some spurious book that was not... A, written by God himself, etc., why can't we just say that God gave Enoch this vision? Perhaps he'd read it, not vision, but these words, exact words to write down. So we find then that, that it's possible. The book of Enoch, for the liberal scholars, it's where he found all his information, etc. It was not really until about 1773 that the entire copy was found. It wasn't in English until 1821, Supposedly, the book of Enoch gives revelations purporting to have been given by Enoch and Noah. And again, supposedly Noah had it on the ark with him. So there's a lot of different things. I can tell you, though, I know all inspiration is given by God. And so I know where it comes from, this one. I know where it comes from. I'm just trying to give you a background of where people might say this verse 14 and 15 come from. The book of Enoch now does seem to refer to the coming of the Lord with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon the ungodly. But critics are always trying to find a way to disparage God's word, and so they account for the difference between the apocrypha of the book of Enoch and Jude as inspired by contending that Jude was quoting inaccurately. I think personally, 
Jude was quoting accurately from the Scripture, for all Scriptures given by inspiration of God. Prophesied means then spoke aforehand. So what does he say here in verse 14? And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, spoke beforehand, is understood in the sense of foretold the future. Now, I can prophesy that tonight when my wife gets ready for bed, there'll be three felines in the bathroom looking up at her. One will actually be on the little refrigerator. Their mouths are not open, but they're like expectant because she, they know. I can prophesy, and I'm not willing to put my life on it, but just about that those cats will be in there because I can predict it. Doesn't make a difference, but they're going to be in there whether one or the other. But that the prophet was foretelling or foretelling. Do you know in Bible times, as you if you were a prophet and you prophesied something, for example, if I was living in Bible times and I said God told me that I'm trying, I shouldn't be a bit irreverent that this is going to happen, it doesn't happen one time. Kill him. Because every time that God spoke to a prophet through a prophet, what happened? It happened just as God said. So prophesy, to, to speak beforehand. So the books of Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah seem to give the Jews a taste for apocalyptic literature, for visions and revelations and prophecies. And so the gift of prophecy had ceased for four centuries in the Malachi. And so they were looking for things. And so books such as the book of Enoch, the Assumption of Moses, the Testament of Moses, Eldad and Medad, and Apocalypse of Elijah, and so on and so forth, they started writing books about these things, but they weren't God-ordained or inspired. All that to say, I believe that most likely that God simply gave the scripture that he wanted to record to Jude personally, whether he had read the book of Enoch or even heard of the book of Enoch or not. So that is the person... This is Enoch, who's writing, Jude's writing about him. Enoch, of course, in his translation is a picture, I believe, of the rapture. Second is the position, starting in verse 14, the Lord's coming with his people. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints. Now, have you ever wondered why there's always this phrase, it's never twenty thousand or forty thousand, it's ten thousands and thousands of thousands because we understand that's like the highest number they had to use in that period. So, ten thousands of his saints. So, perhaps when Mr. John Newton wrote his song about grace, when we've been there ten thousand years. So, because that was in Bible times, that was that's as high as it gets. Now, to note, we have got quadrillion and septillion and all these different zillion and dillions because of people making money or whatever it's going to be, what they're doing there, stars in the sky, whatever it is. But in Bible times, pretty simplistic. Ten thousands and thousands of thousands. That's wow, it's more than I can count on both fingers and uh, both hands and both, both fingers, both hands and both feet. Yes. So the Lord's coming with his people, ten thousands of his saints. It's intended, I believe, here, and Enoch, indeed, as the idea, emphatic in the Greek language, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, who? These false teachers. They are, in verse 15, as the four times the words ungodly is used in verse 15. So they are just not good people, clearly. The Machinip apostolic age, he goes back, back to, beyond the birth of Christ, back beyond the writing prophets, back beyond the days of David, back beyond the judges, Moses, the time of Abraham. He goes all the way back to the flood. So when Jude wants to draw a correlation or give an, a prophecy or talk about Enoch's prophecy, he goes way back in time. Chapter 5 of Genesis, we find Enoch. 
and it covers apostate times. Think about all the apostate times in history besides our own. There, of course, there, there was the time of, of, of all the way back when there was <clears throat> the budding apostates of his own age of the, uh, 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 when Jude was writing, the times apostasy of Israel, the murder of the Messiah, the, the, the captivity, the fall in 586, 722, the apostates when he had people in Elijah's day, the apostates all the way going back. So he chooses and God gives him the license, the liberty to talk about, if you would, liberty, I'm sorry, to talk about Enoch. He passed over the apostasies that so darkened the age of judges even. Passed over Israel in the wilderness. Passed over Nimrod. The arrow flew straight over to the time of Enoch. A lone prophet of God raised his voice that bridged the centuries from the day in which is ours. Now think with me for just a moment. Was Enoch living in a time of apostasy? Yes. Who is Enoch's uh, son? Methuselah? Yeah. And then we have, later on, we have Noah comes on the scene. Great, as his grandson or great-grandson, one. So we find that Enoch, it's a time when, matter of fact, that things get so bad by the time of Noah that God wipes out the earth. So he goes back to a time of severe apostasy, if you would, the seventh from Adam. What does this mean, the seventh from Adam? Seventh person and the patriarchal line, the seventh preacher, yes, you're right. So there, there was, it starts with Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, and Enoch. So that we call that the line of Christ. That's the patriarchal line. And so these men are the ones who carried on the message of God. And so the seventh from Adam, the seventh preacher, ends up being Enoch. And so emphasize, as we know, interesting in chapter 5, <clears throat> when you talk about the world history... In chapter 4, it has all the people who are doing the wrong kind of things, the line of Cain, uh, Tubal and Cain, etc., and of course uh, Lamech there, who was the ungodly Lamech, who had two wives for the first time, etc. Then chapter 5, he takes us to the graveyard, and he died. He, had so, he lived so long, had a son, and he died, and he died, and he died, except we get to 21, and Enoch, and Enoch walked with God. After he begot, what does the Bible say? We should read it for ourselves. Before I say something in, incongruous with Scripture, chapter 5. <laughs> it says here, <clears throat> And Enoch lived sixty and five years, and begat with Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years, and begat sons and daughters. What happened to Enoch when he was sixty-five? What would we call it today? 65, I think he got right with God. Got right with God because it says he walked with God after he begat Methuselah. How many times, as if you're a parent, you remember your child comes along, it's like, whoa, I better start living right because my child's looking up to me to start living. And so Enoch got right with God in some capacity, I think, and he walked, at least he started walking with God as he should after Methuselah was born. And so how long was it when Enoch was 65, how many more years before the flood came? And you know this. 969 years from that point the flood comes. Because I believe the day, very possibly the week that Methuselah dies, there's a seven days on the ark before it starts raining as a, as a memorial time for Methuselah who's just died. And then the flood comes because his name means when he dies it shall come. That's Methuselah. 
So from this time, and when Enoch is 65, 969 years later, the flood comes. We may not have the exact year of everything as far as history, but we can get pretty close. Uh, Usher's chronology is 4004 B.C., so if, when you hear a lot further than that, they're, they're just, uh, we may not agree with that. Now, there may be there's some flexibility there, I understand. But chronologic, uh, chronologically speaking, you could almost trace it if you go by the years of the men in the Bible, these patriarchs of whom Enoch is number seven. We shall move further. We shall go on. It says, he behold, now what does behold mean in the Bible? Sit up. Take notion. Take notice, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So listen, sit up, take notice. Behold, you, we have a board meeting of Five Co. at 1230 on Tuesday of this week. Behold, you had better be there. Yes. And so I'm telling you, I got it on my calendar because I've got to run the Zoom meeting part of it. So I will be there. Much more important, behold our God. We have a choir working on the song. Behold, look up, sit up, take notice, get engaged. Now that's more than maybe the Greek text says. But that's the idea. The Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints. Are those people who after 50 years of being dead had some kind of great attributive thing assigned to them and they've now become saints and they have a statue somewhere? No. It's if you're a child of God, you're a saint. Now, it doesn't mean you always act like one. We, we talked about at lunchtime today, <clears throat> uh, my uh, uh, frustration and my wife's response to my frustration from Friday night if I had let it hanging on through the Friday. And so, yes, I, and so I, under, yes, I did not behave the rest of Friday evening like I should. I let, it, I let it hang on too long. So I got a lot of response on that. He cometh. Now, that's, that is... A past tense. The Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints. It's, it's like it's already happened. Past tense means it's, it's done deal. It's a done deal. We had chicken and baked potato and baked potatoes and carrots and those uh, Rhodes rolls that you leave out for three hours. To, and we had fried taters and a brownie for dessert. So we had this past. It's it's guaranteed. I mean, the past is, right? The past is the past. It happened. So the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints. That's how sure of what God says is going to happen is going to happen. He's coming with 10,000. And that, again, 10,000 of his saints could be a, a large, huge number, more than just 10,000. It's like it's the highest number we have in our, I don't know what the highest number we have in our normal language today we, we, we've gone, and the computers have just gone off the charts with all these new terms of how much uh, I know uh, terabyte. And that's about as uh, Dr. Gracial could tell us probably how farther it's gone from that. Terabyte is a lot of information, probably more information than they had in all the world in 1900, one terabyte. So I don't know. Aren't you glad that God, though, has he's, his knowledge is infinite? The smartest man gets, God's going to be infinitely greater. Just, just, just drop in the bucket compared to our God. So there we go. Back on track, we have the person, we have the position, and we have prophecy, the Lord's coming, and his purpose. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all. 
Now, it's interesting, we have at, at different times in history, when the book of the Revelation came out, from what I understand, back in, in earlier times, a lot of other apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic. Now, when I say that word, do we know we're tracking with that apocalypse? That is the revelation, the work, actually, the apocalypse to unveil. That's what the word revelation means. That's why we call it the apocalypse. Zeiss, in his commentary, calls it the apocalypse. That's the unveiling of God's plan. So when I say the apocalyptic literature of the end times literature, well, you will see the apocalypse. Isn't there some different, different movies are called the apocalypse? I can't remember all the movies are called, but that's what the idea is. What's going to happen in the future? And often it's a negative thing, but, but it's interesting when, you, when we get like Israel and, 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 and Hamas battling there, people start thinking about the future. Back in the 1970s, there was a very popular book called Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. Sold 15 million copies. The internet sold by, said by 1990, it sold 28 million copies. And by 1999, 35 million copies. Then we have, come on the scene, the Tim LaHaye's, which I would much more recommend, Tim LaHaye's books on Left Behind. Do you know how many they have sold now? 80 million copies of Left Behind. 80 million. That's a lot for any kind of collection. So, but now there's two facts about prophecy. First of all, most people are not going to the Bible for answers to their questions. We're going to go to Nostradamus. What did Nostradamus say about this? What, what is predicted in the, the book of the Mayan Chronicles? Or what, what, does, this, what does this person, what, what did the star say? What was her name? Uh, Jeannie something. Do you remember talking about the atheist Jeannie? So what was her name Jeannie something? She sued for, for uh, really involved, I can't remember, I may have come around, that train might come back around. It's not coming around yet. So they, they, don't, they look to false teachers and, false, and fortune tellers and perhaps some pastor on TV who's going to say, you know, I believe the Lord's coming back in 1998, and here's 88 reasons why I believe that. Well, let's get his book. Or Harold Camping. Harold Camping, I was 11 or 15 times changed his belief of when the Lord's coming back. A hundred million dollars was spent by his group. People gave that to, to advertise his erroneous predictions. You think a hundred million? So I talked about it like last time. So we'll not rehash that. But they go to the wrong place. And secondly, despite all the interest in prophecy, most people do not believe that he's coming back in the first place. Why? We talked about this morning. Because they're following after their own lust. Because if Jesus is coming back, I'm responsible to get my life right with him or I'm going to be doomed. Well, that is the truth. But we think of doom. Jesus is, is really, he came to save. That's the whole reason we have the Bible. It's the gospel, which is what kind of news? Good news. See, it's just, it's just like, it's like a wave of refreshment. The good news. We don't have to go to hell. You don't have to. Matter of fact, from this morning, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, well, everybody know, we understand that. Everybody's not going to come to repentance. But I believe the offer is there. If the Holy Spirit's moving in your heart, respond and receive Him. His patience is not, it's not going to last forever. Last, uh, he said, I remember, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 or 4, yes. 120 years, my spirit's going to strive. And after that, which would have been 800, I can't do it that quick, uh, would have been 120 years less than 969. 
That's when he said those words from Noah's, when Enoch had uh, Methuselah. We can put it all together there, but the Lord's got a plan. We may not have exact years exactly, but we can have a good idea of what God has for us. Verse 15, we find in it, it's going to talk about the ungodly. To execute judgment upon all, to convince all or convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, these men in verse 4 of the same book said they were certain men crept in unawares, ungodly men. Impious, they hold nothing sacred. The word means much more than merely being irreligious. It means acting in contradiction to God's demands. They were ungodly. It's an either or. So we have in our ideas, we have, it's, it's, the language is, it conveys a negative. So a person is either married or unmarried. They are either happy or unhappy, right? They're either godly or ungodly. Okay, that's where we're trying to go. Okay. So that's the idea. At his second coming, the Lord's going to execute judgment upon all. Judgment. We have been saved from the wrath to come. Not only, I believe, saved as a church from the tribulation, but saved from eternal wrath by his saving grace. So are you going to stand before God one day? The answer to that is yes. Is everybody in Graham County going to stand before God at one time or another? Yes. In the world. Yes, we're all going to stand before God. There are two specific times for the believer. We call that what? The judgment seat of Christ, the beam of seat. For, and is it for going to heaven or hell? No. It's going for reward or loss of reward, what you've done for Christ. We talked about this morning how they're going, the, Lord, the fire is going to burn our works. Those that were done for Christ, the right motive will last. The unbelievers all find themselves, if you want to turn, hold your finger just a few pages over to Revelation 20, some of the saddest words in all the Bible. These ungodly ones will find themselves here, Revelation 20, verse 11. Verse 10, sorry. Well, verse 11 is fine. And I saw a great white throne. Now, by the way, if God's throne is white here, it probably still is white at the judgment seat of Christ, but we call this the great white throne because it's specifically called that here. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven flayed away. Ties right in with this morning's message about the melting of the earth when God lets go of his holding all things together and the earth burns with fire remade and there was found no place for them and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were open and another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. When's the last time you heard a message on the books of God? How important is he keeps a very accurate determination of what has gone on. He does. And they were judged out of these books. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. That is, Hades, I believe, in the center of this earth, delivers up hell, the temporary abode. They stand before God, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. We are not judged by, our works will never get us to heaven. We are judged by what we did for Christ, the works for Christ. But these are works that, what's the number one work? Did you receive my son as personal Savior? That's the question. That's doesn't say that specifically, but that's why they rejected him. That's why they're here. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Good news for us. 
bad news for the unbeliever. Because, you see what's cast in the... There's no annihilation. Death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. So for them to have the opportunity... I'm just telling you, you spend one moment in hell, five minutes in hell, you would much rather be annihilated, than I'm guessing, than to be there. But that option is off the table now because death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Judgment upon all. But what does this tell you of our God? He is gracious. He offers, the offer, he offers us the opportunity to get right with Him and to have our names remain in the, in the book of life and then, I believe, placed in the Lamb's book of life. The book of life, I believe, is every single human being. And with that point in time when you die without Christ or perhaps you've spurned Him for that last time, your name is removed from that book of life. My personal view, viewpoint here, because whosoever was not found written in that book, you can't be in that book to be and go to, he- and go to hell or go to heaven. So you have to be in the book to go to heaven and if you're not, there you're going to hell because your name has been blotted out. Did not Moses, was it Moses said, please don't blot my name out or blot my name out, possibly, the book of life or the book? These ungodly people, back over in Jude chapter 1, verse 14, 15, God's going to execute judgment. But he does not want to send, I really do not believe he wants to send people to hell. But, his, this, but he is so holy Sin cannot abide with God. Do you realize that's, that's the key thing? You can't be in heaven with God with sin. So the only way you're going to live with God is to have your sin forgiven once and for all. So when God the Father looks at me, He sees the blood of Christ covering me. Amen! We should make a Baptist. Woohoo! Shout! Woohoo! Because of His wonderful mercy and grace. Person, position, prophecy, people, verse 15. They're ungodly. He's going to convene the inquest and summon all the hosts of, of all the ages. We just read it at the great white throne judgment. Imagine the horror of the occasion the, when the living dead, small and great, stand before God and the books have opened. Can't you now imagine all those who gave their lives for a lot of good service for people? I just know that my name is there. It's got to be there. I mean, I give my life. I mean, I, and I, I walk five miles on my knees and I climb those steps over in Rome up to the top of the step. And I've done all these things and I've worked and done and served and, and said my 10,000 rosary beads a year, a month, surely. But that's not, you can't earn your way ever. You can't. I've given, and despite what Mr. Bloomberg says, his $50 million does not give him a free pass into heaven. I don't care for whatever purpose you gave it. The quote was, I don't have to, I'm just going to go straight in when I go to heaven. Because I gave $50 million to some good cause. Probably a cause I think I disagree with, but there we go. I'm going straight in. It doesn't work that way. We're going to go straight in because of what he has done for us. That's the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We understand that. So how great will be their terror when the books are opened and their works of the, and their wickedness finally are going to come into the blazing light of God's glory. Somewhere in here, they're going to bow the knee and declare that Jesus is Lord. Somewhere in time. It'll have to be before they're cast into the, to the, uh, to the lake of fire. It'll have to be sometime in here. It may be right here. Maybe. Maybe right here.
And I think very possibly, if you're wondering how God can do all the judgment seat of Christ, uh, it's going to be a long time. Uh, Could not God all do that all at once with all of us and speak to all of our minds at one time at the judgment seat of Christ? Could he not do that if he wants to? Let's not get so uh, hung up on how's that all going to work. He's got it planned. I like that my father planned it all. He's still got it planned. So he's going to take care of all those things. Let us just sit back and let him be God and let me be his servant. And we'll be a lot better off instead of us being God and him our servant through our demanding prayers. Cheap and tawdry will be those of the higher criticism who have cast disparaging words upon our God. The word convict here means uh, involves more than just bringing in the evidence. It involves refuting the arguments of the guilty. They're going to be convinced. They're going to be convicted. No one's going to stand. And there are going to be some who will still, I think, even when they stand before God, shake their fist in God's face because they hate God. This idea that everybody's going to be in heaven one day, universalism, because God loves everybody. He does love the world so much. But there are those who do not want to be with God. And they will not be with God. He is not going to force them to convert. That's why we have this option. It involves repentance. It's what, if you're saved, you repented. Because everybody is saved, repents of what they've done. That's part of it. It is. These empty soul destroying theories of the higher critics that say, oh, it's not that important, and then the Bible's not. It is. Every single word of God is so important. All their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, the word in there means to act impiously concerning what should be regarded as sacred. The, the truth of the gospel, God Himself, those serving in Christian ministry should be regarded as sacred. The, the, those who are leading, etc., in spiritual ways, you should be, doesn't mean they need to be worshiped, but they do need to be encouraged and prayed for, etc. They've spoken against him. Words literally means hard to touch or rough. When used figuratively of words, is used in a sense of harsh, unpleasant words. That's what they have said. So people say, well, God's a God of love. He is a God of love. But Jehovah of the Old Testament is Jesus of the New. And Jehovah of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and mercy the Jesus of the New Testament is a God of wrath and mercy. Same God. So you can't, well, the Old Testament God was very angry, but Jesus, he's a God of love. He is. He's the personification of love, but he also is the personification of holiness, and you cannot live as an unrighteous person with a holy God. You cannot do it. So in conclusion, so what it, I just thought this was a good little illustration about do we have a heartbeat for Christ's kingdom? How influential is music on the young people of our society? We know it's very influential. They buy millions of recordings and now they live stream and have them everywhere. And screaming fans jam-packed concerts by well-meaning known artists. So whether we like it or not, rock, rap, heavy metal, he says, are making a significant impact in today's culture and all the other myriad of signs of music. I just read this week where Rod Stewart, who has a voice like a frog or something, a hundred million dollar contract for all his albums for the rest. Of, uh, I'm sorry if, I, if you like Rod Stewart. I just, he's just not a godly person. He wasn't really a great singer, I don't think. That's my personal opinion. But I, what the truth is, he sold his, his old kit and caboodle for a hundred million dollars. I wouldn't give you a penny for everything else, the album that he has. I actually would give you a penny for it and burn them all. So there we are. 
Needless to say, Neil Gallagher of Oasis, a group of the past, made the claim, he says, we're more popular than Jesus Christ right now. He added, and some of the pop stars I like more are more important to me than God. He doesn't have a relationship, did not have the relationship. And by the way, a group broke up in 2009 and he's changed to a different group. So I guess it wasn't as popular as he thought, perhaps. But that's... Do you see, the culture thinks that they are something we think and know God is everything. Awesome? There's one awesome being, my thinking personal being, that is our God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. That'd be a great song, but somebody's going to grab that one. Hey, that's who our God is. He's that. The music of Oasis and the warped thinking of its leaders, this is from Vernon Grounds, cry out for the sharpest criticism. Yet what place does Jesus occupy in our lives? Is God supremely important to us? Are we thrilled by music that magnifies the gospel? Are we grateful for our salvation? Are we praying for those young and old who haven't put their trust in, faith and trust in Christ yet? What does God mean to us? I think it was just a couple of days ago that talked about glass houses, and someone said, I, I think his bud posted on there, living in glass houses, and the lady wrote and said, well, my pockets are empty. I like that. Our pockets should be empty because only by God's grace and mercy have we heard the gospel. If I were to offer you every single thing in the world, if you'll just give up your Bible and give up Christ... What's your choice? I'm telling you, I can honestly say, I will take this and God and have nothing left. That's it. And that's a decision you need to make because you're going to be pushed into making it pretty soon here in America, I'm thinking. It's this. Because this is eternality. This life's passing. My life's going to be over here in a few years, likely. At least the life on this earth. My spiritual life is forever. So I'd rather have Jesus than anything. 